if you've got a, a Bible with you, I want to invite you to open up to two different places. The first, and where you can kind of leave it open for the moment, is Luke chapter 9. We're going to be in verses 30 through 50 this morning, which is picking up right where we left off last week. But then if you've got a hard copy Bible there in front of you, and you've got a bookmark or something that you can kind of set inside of it, I'm going to invite you to open up to Philippians chapter 2 and like put a bookmark there, put your ribbon there. If you're using a digital copy, you can just swipe over to it later. We're going to use Philippians chapter 2 here a little bit later as, as we work our way through this. Where we are in the gospel of Luke here, coming out of the transfiguration, which we looked at last week, is a little bit like the moment where you've just come back from vacation. You spent a week somewhere else enjoying potentially like a place that was cleaned for you. Like you went out for the day and you came back and magically the whole room was put back together and everything looked delightful. And then you get back home and you remember that the house is in the same messy state it was in before you left, that there are still bills to pay. And the reality of normal life comes crashing back down on top of you. That post-vacation feeling is a little bit of what we're going to see happens with Jesus, James, John, and Peter when they come down the mountain from transfiguration. They see Jesus displayed in all of his eternal glory up there, and then they come down from the mountain, and they're met by an interaction with a demon, an argument among the disciples about who is the greatest among them, and a conversation about like who's in and who's out. Who's one of us and who isn't? And all the realities and difficulties of normal life in a broken world just come crashing back into Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And it's not all that dissimilar from what happens when Moses comes down from the mountain in Exodus, which we talked about last week. He's up there meeting with God. He gets the the law. He comes down to the Israelite people and he's got all of this, like, here's how it is that we're going to live in relationship with, with the Lord, with Yahweh, and here's how we're going to worship him correctly, and this is what it looks like, and there are the Israelites worshiping a golden calf. And it's just like crashes right back into the reality of life in a broken world. That's what happens here in Luke 37 to 50. We're just going to kind of take this, if you just look at it visually there in your Bible, it's probably broken into either three or four different chunks. We're going to take those four pieces and look at them as one kind of collective whole. And what we're going to look at this morning is attitudes. One at a time, how do we see that it is that the gospel ought to shape our attitude in a way that's different from what our flesh, left in its own sin, would create inside of us. Then we'll kind of zoom in on like the central piece of all of that. And we'll use that Philippians 2 passage to show how this is something that's true throughout the New Testament. Let me start by just reading. So if you've got it open, this is Luke 9, starting in verse 37. The next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. Just then a man from the crowd cried out, teacher, I beg you, look at my son because he's my only child. A spirit seizes him. Suddenly he shrieks and it throws him into convulsions until he foams at the mouth. Severely bruising him, it scarcely ever leaves him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. Jesus replied, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. As the boy was still approaching, the demon knocked him down and threw him into severe convulsions. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. 
and they were all astonished at the greatness of God. While everyone was amazed at all the things he was doing, he told his disciples, let these words sink in. The son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement. It was concealed from them so that they could not grasp it and they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among them about who was the greatest of them. But Jesus, knowing their inner thoughts, took a little child and had him stand next to him. He told him, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. For whoever is least among you, this one is great. John responded, Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. Don't stop him, Jesus told him, because whoever is not against you is for you. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would show us your glory. Help us to see clearly who Jesus is. Help us to see clearly what it is that he has done for us on the cross. Help us to rejoice in the truth of the gospel out of your word this morning. Would your Holy Spirit take it, impress it upon our hearts, God. Open our eyes and our minds, open our ears and our hearts that we might receive the word like good soil and by endurance, hold on to it and obey it, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the main, kind of the main point this morning. We're going to circle around. And that's that the transformational power of the gospel is as evident in our attitudes as it is in our behaviors. When we think about the gospel's power to transform, typically what we think of first are behaviors. That the gospel could take someone who's living outright, outwardly in sin, and by the power of God's grace working inside that individual, bring them into a life of obedience. But that transformational power is just as powerful in the shaping of our attitudes as it is in the shaping of our behaviors. And so we're gonna work through these four different sections and look at the attitudes that are on display. Jesus is discipling his disciples. That's what we've been talking about throughout Luke chapter nine. And what he's going to be discipling or teaching them in this instance is all about their attitudes. And so it starts in verses 37 to 41. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. Just then, a man from the crowd cried out, teacher, I beg you, look at my son because he's my only child. A spirit seizes him. Suddenly he shrieks and it throws him into convulsions until he foams at the mouth, severely bruising him. It rarely ever departs him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. Jesus replied, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Try to keep the big picture in mind. We're not gonna do kind of the, the deep dive on demons and Jesus's power over demons and his sovereignty over evil. We've, we've done that in some previous passages where we see a demon cast out of somebody. And so if you are interested in that, you can go back and find that on the podcast or on our website. This morning, we're looking at the bigger picture. There's a father. His only son has a demon that is absolutely tormenting the child. Seizes him, throws the child into convulsions until he's foaming at the mouth. The child is severely bruised. It scarcely ever leaves. And the father, in his desperation, has reached out to the disciples so that the disciples would 
do something about this demon. And why is it that he reached out to the disciples? We're not entirely sure. Maybe the father heard about the ministry that the disciples had been doing that we saw earlier in chapter nine. Jesus sent them out with authority over diseases and demons. Or it could just be that the father's heard of Jesus, but Jesus was up on the mountain with James, Peter, and John. So he reaches out to the next best thing, the guys who travel with Jesus. But they're unsuccessful in being able to cast this demon out. So when Jesus comes down from the mountain, the father goes directly to him. And he begs Jesus, do something. And Jesus casts the demon out, heals the boy, gives the boy back to the father. That's the heart of Jesus in the face of brokenness and despair. We've seen this over and over and over again, that he has the power to heal, or in this case, to cast this demon out. And he's got compassion that when people cry out to him, he hears and he acts. But there's an attitude on display here in the disciples, and we see it in the way Jesus comments in this. And that statement that Jesus makes in verse 41, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. There's a crowd there. I don't think Jesus is making that statement to the father. The father obviously believes Jesus can do something about what's happening with my son. The crowd is just kind of present there watching. I think Jesus makes his comment to the disciples. And the specific reason why I think that is the case is because what did we see them doing not long ago in chapter nine? He sent them out with authority and they were casting out demons. And now here's this father who's like, I, I tried them and they couldn't do anything. Can you please help me? There's an attitude here in the disciples, I think. And it's one of autonomy. Jesus sent them out with all authority to heal diseases and cast out demons. And they were totally dependent on that during this ministry that he sent them out to do. And they saw amazing results from that. Now they've come back. They've spent some time together. They've heard Jesus talk about what it means to follow him. And he's talked about what's going to happen to him. And then he went up on the mountain. And while he was up there, a man comes and brings a child who's possessed with, his, with a demon. And we can cut the disciples a little bit of slack here. They probably think to themselves, we've done this before. We can do this again. We know how this works. We can cast this demon out. We do this all the time. You go through a particularly difficult season of life and it feels like you're totally depending on the Lord. You're totally depending on him for wisdom. You're totally depending on him for comfort. You're totally depending on him in the middle of a particularly intense sin struggle. And then you get to the other side of that difficult season and something less pressing seems to come up. And you think to yourself, I'm good. I've done this before. I know how to navigate through this. And we think we can handle it. We're autonomous. For whatever reason, it appears that the disciples, the nine that were down there, thought they could handle this on their own. And they get a stark reminder that they can't. And what Jesus is having to give them a reminder of is dependence. That's the attitude that the gospel shapes in the life of a follower of Jesus. We talked about this last week. Everything is always all about Jesus. If the disciples are going to continue doing ministry, it's going to be all about Jesus. They're going to have to be dependent upon him.
in all things in our lives. It's always all about Jesus. Your relationship started with dependence upon Jesus. Your relationship with Jesus grows because of a dependence upon Jesus. One day you're going to stand before the throne in judgment and in your moment of judgment, it's going to be all about dependence upon Jesus for you to be declared innocent in that moment. And yet for some reason, we start to think to ourselves as we live life, I think I'm okay. This particular sin thing, I think I can handle this one on my own. This particular life decision, I think I've got it under control. This particular relational struggle, I think I can navigate this one by myself. If you're going to deny yourself and take up your cross, it's going to be all about dependence upon Jesus that enables you to do that. If you're going to be sanctified, it's going to be all about a dependence upon Jesus that enables you to do that. If you're going to grow in obedience, it's going to be all about Jesus and a dependence upon him. If you're going to do anything eternally significant for the kingdom of God, it's going to be because you were dependent upon Jesus, not because you made it happen yourself. Dependence, dependence, dependence. And that very idea of laying down our thoughts of self-sufficiency and autonomy flies in the very face of everything that we kind of hold at the core of being American. Being an American is about me. I can raise myself up. I can accomplish the things I want to accomplish. I can work hard enough to make things happen for me. I can do this. I'm independent. I'm autonomous. I don't need anybody. I don't need any help. And then you come to Christ and you realize that for the most important thing in your whole eternity, you absolutely are dependent upon Christ. And that gospel that saves you is then supposed to become the central fixture of your life, whereby you would say, and I'm not only entirely dependent upon the gospel for the most important eternal thing in my life, I'm entirely dependent upon the gospel for everything in my life. And one of the hardest sanctifying works that the gospel does in American Christians is crush their sense of autonomy that you can just do everything all by yourself. You got saved because of Jesus, but then from there on out, you made it happen. We need the gospel to shape an attitude of dependence in us. Dependence upon the gospel and the power of Jesus. Look at verse 42. As the boy was still approaching, the demon knocked him down and threw him into severe convulsions. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all astonished at the greatness of God. Then you'll notice there's a section break there, but verse 43 continues down below it. While everyone was amazed at all the things he was doing, he told his disciples. Jesus takes the boy, casts the demon out. The boy's given back to his father. And we're told that the people are astonished at the greatness of God. We're told that they're amazed by what Jesus is doing. Peter, James, and John, they just saw with their own eyes the eternal glory of the sun burst through into temporal reality up at the transfiguration. And now through Jesus' actions, the rest of the disciples and this larger crowd of people get a glimpse of that glory as Jesus casts out this demon. And the inverse of their amazement, their astonishment is indifference. This crowd of people the disciples that are present, the nine that weren't up on the mountain, they're shaken out of their indifference toward God. They're awakened to his greatness. Indifference toward God is the default setting of the human heart left to its sin. That's who we are, indifferent. 
Paul says as much in the first chapter of Romans. In verses 20 and 21, he says, for his invisible God's invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. We're indifferent in our sin to the glory and the majesty of God. Creation itself, Paul says, speaks to the very fact that God is great and glorious and yet we miss it because we're blinded by sin. And so what happens in this moment is that the people are smacked with this sense of reverence. They're marveling at the greatness of God. And the word for greatness there, the word great is going to be used when the disciples are having an argument about who's the greatest among them. And Jesus is going to tell them what it means to be great. But the word for the greatness of God here is a totally different word. In this instance, it means grandeur or majesty or sublimity. The people are astonished at the majesty of Jesus. He is sublime in their eyes. That's not a word we use very often. When Jesus calmed the storm out on the lake in the boat with the disciples, the disciples were moved to reverence. On the mountain, what do Peter, James, and John get moved to in the transfiguration? They're stunned into silence. Reverence. In this action of casting out this demon, the crowd and the rest of the disciples are moved to reverence. That is the attitude of a follower of Jesus toward Jesus. We cannot claim to know Christ and be indifferent toward him. His kindness, his power, his grace, his mercy, his love, his commands, his actions, his gentleness, his faithfulness, all of those are to inspire reverence inside of us. And if you're gonna walk with Jesus in a gospel-centered sort of way where you keep the cross of Christ in front of you, in front of your heart and your mind and your eyes at all times, you're going to continually be moved to reverence at the majesty of Jesus and what he's done on your behalf. Look at verses 46 through 48. An argument started among them about who was the greatest of them. But Jesus, knowing their inner thoughts, took a little child and had him stand next to him. He told them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. For whoever is least among you, this one is great. This is maybe the height of irony in all of the gospel accounts. Peter, James, John, they're hours removed from being at the transfiguration. Hours. It's the next day. Jesus has just erupted into the fullness of his glory up there on the mountain. They've just watched him cast a demon out of this child who was so totally overtaken that he was being bruised and sent into convulsions. This father was begging for Jesus to help. Everyone's astonished and amazed. And there are the disciples having an argument. Which one of us do you think is greatest? Jesus is the greatest one. Right? I mean, the irony that you could get done on that mountain and then witness what Jesus just did and have seen all the stuff that Jesus has done up to this point and think that an argument, a petty argument about who is greatest is the thing that you need to engage in is absolutely astonishing. And yet it's not all that astonishing because the human heart left to its own devices is inherently prideful. At our very core, that's who we are. And it's what's on display in this argument. In the very face of God's greatness, 
even if we were to see it break through into time on a mountain through the face of the Son of God, the bent of the human heart is toward our own greatness. That's where Satan started in the garden. You eat this fruit, you can be like God. And from that moment on, humanity has tirelessly engaged in the process of not just trying to be like God or equal to him, but really trying to say, what you need to focus on is my greatness. What you need is to get me on the pedestal. Not God, not someone else. And so what Jesus does is he gives them a reminder of humility. He takes a child from nearby, which seems maybe a little bit odd to us. But children in this time were one of the lowest rungs of society. Children occupy a high position in our society today, and rightfully so. They absolutely ought to, but it wasn't the case then. So it wasn't even that like children should be seen, not heard. It was that children should be like out of the picture. And so Jesus grabs one of those, child, one of those children, brings him right up next to him and says, whoever would welcome a child that person welcomes me. And if you welcome me, you welcome the one who sent me. And Jesus says, whoever is least among you, that you would humble yourself to welcome a child in my name, that is the one who is great. And notice that Jesus does not say, that's the one who is greatest. He doesn't answer the debate that the disciples are having. Jesus is the greatest one. And you can be great in the kingdom of God, but you will never supplant him. And so how do you be great in the kingdom of God? Through humility. You take up your cross. You deny yourself. You don't put yourself on the pedestal. You look up at Jesus on the throne. There's how you become great in the kingdom of God. It's not through pushing yourself to the top, but by willingly lowering yourself to the bottom, Jesus says. Then verses 49 and 50, John responded. This is the most bizarre response ever. Jesus makes this powerful statement about humility. And then John says, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. Verse 50, don't stop him, Jesus told him, because whoever is not against you is for you. For whatever reason, when John hears Jesus make this statement about humility in the middle of their argument about which of the disciples is the greatest, he feels compelled to tell a story about a different guy. They were just trying to cast a demon out of a child and they were unsuccessful. Jesus rebukes them in that moment, steps into the middle of their petty argument about who is the greatest, and then John says, there was this other guy and he was casting out demons. But don't worry, Jesus, we told him to stop because he doesn't follow us. And Jesus says, don't tell him to stop because if he is not against us, he's for us. If he's not against us, we should be cheering him on, not trying to get him to quit. And what's on display within the disciples is this spirit of competition that's born out of our pride. Our natural inclination is to try to put up fences. Who's in? Who's out? Who's right? Who's wrong? Who's one of us? Who isn't? That's a rampant problem throughout all of humanity, but it's also particularly and poignantly on display in the American church today. 
it seems as if there's no limit to what the church in America is willing to divide over or willing to fight over. It's as, as if there's no limit to what the American church is willing to try to kick someone out over. What we see Jesus discipling is a spirit or an attitude of cooperation that would be born out of humility. That's a particular expression of unity that we would cooperate with those who do things differently than us, who might think differently than us on secondary theological issues, that we would be willing to cooperate with those who might have different methods of ministry or might do ministry in different cultural realities from us. If they're not against you, they're for you, Jesus says. Unity and cooperation are not born out of agreement in all things, but out of agreement on the things of first importance. So I don't want this to like dominate the sermon. But given the current climate in the church in America today, it's important to point out what is of first importance and what is not. There are first order doctrines that are core to the gospel. And if you take those away, the gospel would fall. The full humanity and divinity of Jesus, that is a first order doctrine. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's a first order doctrine. The authority of scripture, the reality of the Trinity. Those are the things where we've got to have agreement because if we don't have agreement on those things, someone doesn't have true Christianity. And so we can't have unity on that. We also can't cooperate in ministry together. But then there are second order doctrines. These tend to be the things by which a particular church defines or organizes itself. The meaning and mode of baptism, leadership structures within the local congregation, the, the method or the sort of organizing of membership, the exact manner in which church discipline is applied, the role of women in ministry, those are second order doctrines. And you would maybe choose to leave a church because you don't agree with those second order sort of doctrinal things. But on your way out, you wouldn't be leaving saying that church is in sin or that church is heretical or those people aren't Christian. You would be leaving saying, I'm looking for a place that does leadership differently. This is a wonderful church. They're not against us, they're for us but I'm looking for something different. You would maybe do that over a second order thing. And then there are third order doctrines, particular beliefs about the end times, the frequency with which a church takes communion, what's the instrumentation like in worship, what's the preaching style like, is it topical or exegetical? Those are third order doctrines. We can worship together in close fellowship and believe differently on those things. You and I could have a different view on the end times and we can gather together in worship. You and I could feel differently about what kinds of songs we connect to. You might wish I spent more time giving practical application than I do in a sermon. And we could still worship together. The problem becomes when we try to put fences around things that don't need fences. When we try to make third order doctrines or second order doctrines, the means by which we're gauging whether or not someone is or is not faithful in the proclamation of the gospel. This call for cooperation and unity, it's not a call to turn a blind eye towards sin and it's not a call to turn a blind eye toward false gospels. We need to be clear on those things. This is a call to cooperation built on the truths of the gospel for the sake of the gospel. And Jesus calls for that cooperation as an expression of unity, one that's based on keeping the main things, the main things. The church starts to bicker with one another and problems arise 
and the power, the unifying power of the gospel gets diminished in the eyes of the world when we make a bigger deal out of our second and third order fences than we do about the great gateway into faith and belief, and that's Jesus Christ. Cooperation or competition. Autonomy, indifference, pride, competition. Those are the four things we see in this passage. We could talk a lot about the attitudes that the, goal, the gospel cultivates inside of us, but those are four that we see here that the gospel works against and what it creates is an attitude of dependence and reverence and humility and cooperation. If you've got Philippians 2 marked in your Bible, go ahead and flip over there. If you're on a device, swipe yourself that direction. Paul is the author of Philippians. He was not one of the 12 apostles. He did not spend the three years walking with Jesus and being there present. He became a believer sometime after, but he met with the apostles. He wrote two-thirds of your New Testament. He's very intimately familiar with the teachings of Jesus. And in the middle of his letter to the Philippians, he makes a powerful call for Christian humility and unity. His understanding of the attitude that the gospel cultivates in a Christian is the exact same as what Jesus is discipling in his disciples. I'm just gonna start reading this in uh, Philippians chapter two, verse one. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. There is your call for cooperation. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's both your call to humility and your perfect example of it in Jesus. Verse nine, for this reason, God highly exalted him, gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is the reality of reverence. Every human being is going to be moved to a point where they bow down before Jesus. And you're either going to make that decision now in life in response to the gospel, or you are going to see it with stark clarity when you see the holiness of God in your moment of judgment, and it will have been too late. Verse 12, therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Who's doing that inside of you? God, there's your dependence. That's not you doing that. That's God working in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. The transformational power of the gospel is as evident in our attitudes as it is in our behaviors. The picture that we get of Jesus discipling his disciples and the call that is given to us in Philippians is the exact same thing. And it centers on the exact same thing. I passed over a section of this while we were working through the verses here. 
That section starts in the back half of verse 43 in the first part of verse 44. While everyone was amazed at all the things he was doing, he told his disciples, let these words sink in. That's a Greek idiom that literally would translate, put these words in your ears. The son of man is about to be portrayed into the hands of men. What's at the core of all of this for Jesus? It was at the core before he went up on the mountain for the transfiguration and it is at the core of it on the backside and it is what he's going to do in Jerusalem. It's his work on the cross. It's the second time that Jesus has highlighted that he's going to be killed and it hangs right in the middle of this portion of Luke 9. Greatness for Jesus is defined by the cross. The gospel is at the center of his ministry. The disciples don't quite understand that the miracles of Jesus are not what defines his greatness. They don't quite get that the fact that they saw him transfigured on the mountain, that that was not the pinnacle of his ministry on earth, that it is the cross that defines greatness for Jesus. It's the gospel that transforms. What's going to move you from autonomy to dependence or indifference to reverence or pride to humility or competition to cooperation? The gospel. And then we're told in verse 45, but they did not understand this statement. It was concealed from them so that they could not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. They don't get it. Why is it concealed? I'm not entirely sure. And it's probably not completely healthy to just wildly speculate. Here's what we can know for sure. Everything that God does is for the ultimate good of his glory, his gospel, and his people. And so for whatever reason, he conceals this truth about Jesus going to the cross, he conceals it from the disciples for a time. And we can trust that he had a good reason and a good purpose for doing that. For whatever reason, he oftentimes conceals things from us. And we can trust that when he does that, he's got a good reason and a good purpose for it. But Jesus is being clear. Everything about who I am hangs on what's gonna happen in Jerusalem. It hangs on what's gonna happen at the cross. And it was the exact same in Philippians chapter two when Paul gave his plea to his audience. What hung in the middle of that? Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Why is it that you would have the same purpose and spirit? Why is it that you would have love for one another? Why is it that you would humble yourself? because of the gospel. It's the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus that defines the majesty and the wonder and the glory and the magnificence of Christ. He went to the cross and there he displayed the fullness of that majesty. He tells us that in following him, we're to take up our cross and that's the thing that's going to make us great. Not greatest, but great. It's in seeing the greatness of Jesus on the cross that our pride is humbled, our reverence is stoked, our unity is solidified, and our dependence is renewed. Michael Reeves, the author of a book called Rejoice and Tremble, says this, the grandeur of God pulls our focus up and away from ourselves. We wonder at a being greater than us. We therefore diminish. His magnificence distracts us and woos us from our daily self-obsession. Trembling and wonder at God keeps one from trusting in oneself. It's the key to true humility, which is not trying to think less of yourself or even trying to think of yourself less, but about marveling at him more. 
the solution to our fleshly attitudes is to focus on Jesus. Luke's gospel has been building that up from the very start. The whole thing is about the truth and the reality of who Jesus is. Jesus is teaching his disciples about who he is. Luke is teaching his readers about who Jesus is. And the call is for us to focus on him. And so as we conclude this morning, I just want us to take a a moment here and marvel at Jesus in the gospel. And so if you want to grab your communion cup that you've got, if you're at home and you want to grab your supplies to take communion with us. If you're taking communion here with us in the room, there are two little tabs on your cup. The first one, the cellophane, you pull off and it gives you the wafer. You pull the second tab that's a little bit thicker and it opens up the juice. I wanna go back to one phrase in this passage. One phrase that gives us this beautiful, wonderful picture and reminder of the gospel. In verse 41, Jesus rebukes the disciples, you unbelieving and perverse generation. And then he asks this question, how long will I be with you and put up with you? The immediate answer to that question is that Jesus will be with them really just for a short time because he's about to go to Jerusalem where he's going to be crucified. He's gonna die, he's gonna be buried, he's gonna resurrect, and then he's gonna ascend. He's not gonna be with his disciples much longer, but the full gospel answer to that question, how long will I be with you and put up with you, brother and sister? The answer to that is for eternity. How long? What was he willing to do? What did he, how far did he go in putting up with us? All the way to the cross, willingly and joyfully. How long will he be with us for all of eternity and nothing will make him more happy? Like that's the beauty of the gospel. The cross is the ultimate reminder that Jesus's death covers not, over, not only our behavioral sins, but also our sinful attitudes. The cross is the reminder that Jesus died willingly and joyfully there for those sins, that he rose triumphantly over them at the resurrection, that he has sent his spirit to be in his people, to empower them to take up their cross and put those sinful attitudes to death. And the way that we do it is by keeping our eyes on the glory and the majesty of Jesus. The gospel shapes shapes our attitudes so that by God's grace, we become dependent reverent, humble, cooperative people. And so you've got these elements in front of you. I want you to take that wafer. Now it's normal for us to say in this moment, this is the body of Christ broken for you. I wanna expand on that. Brothers and sisters, this is the body of Christ broken for your autonomy loving, indifferent, prideful, competitive heart. Willingly and joyfully take and eat in remembrance of him. Brothers and sisters, if you've trusted in Christ and in his grace for the forgiveness of your sin, then this cup, the the blood that this cup represents is a reminder that Jesus's blood was willingly, joyfully, voluntarily spilled so that it might wash away the stain of your autonomy-loving, indifferent, prideful, competitive heart. Take and drink in remembrance of him. The means by which we become a people who are dependent, reverent, humble, and cooperative is by keeping the gospel at the forefront at all times. 
We take communion in order to put that picture right in front of our face. And then the goal is to walk with the gospel in the front of our minds and our hearts so that we're ever and always in awe of the majesty of Jesus, allowing him to be the means by which we're molded into a people who are dependent upon him, reverent of him, who are humble before him, and who walk in unity with one another. Amen? Amen. Let's worship together. You can stand up.